Romans chapter 2. If you don't know where the book of Romans is at, if you go to the Gospels, you will find uh, in the middle of the Bible about, uh, probably about 55 or 60% of the way through the Bible, you'll find the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then after that is the book of Acts and Romans. So uh, Romans uh, chapter 2. If you're with us for the first time, uh, we started last week a series that we entitled Hypocrite. Uh, We're looking at uh, this chapter of Romans 2, and uh, the writer is the Apostle Paul, and he has some words to share with us about God's righteous judgment. In Romans 1, he talks about God's righteous judgment uh, to those who find themselves in blatant and uh, open sin. And yet, uh, this uh, chapter is more about uh, what I learned uh, last week is a good name for uh, people, and that is the respectable sinners. Not the ones that are uh, so blatant and grievous, the ones that are out in the open, but the ones that are more subtle. And Paul talks about that as well. So we're going to uh, look at uh, Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 11 this morning. And as our tradition is, if you would stand as I read from God's Word this morning, Romans chapter 2. I'm going to read uh, to give us a context, starting in verse 1, and we'll go through verse 11. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things... Do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by patience and doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. We have your word open to us, your love letter uh, to us. And Lord, on a day where we dedicate children, on a day where many visitors are in this place, Lord, I am well aware of the text that is before us. Uh, Lord, we uh, don't know uh, all of how calendars all work together, but this is not an easy text to deal with, especially on this day. Lord, it's tough at times to speak of your judgment, to utter the word wrath, to speak of your anger and displeasure. Lord, for some here, they will uh, think of you as being unfair. For some here, they will think of you as being unjust. But Lord, we know that you have shown your kindness We know that you have shown your grace. And while, Lord, we declare with no apologies that there's a day coming where some will see your wrath and judgment, we are so very thankful that Jesus Christ came to take away that wrath and judgment for all who will turn in repentance and bow the knee to Jesus Christ. 
Lord, I'm so thankful for your gift of salvation that we don't have to uh, see the wrath and anger in our future, but we can see your grace and mercy. So, Lord, as I declare your word this morning, I pray that you would speak to us wherever we may be. Father, if we are still under your wrath, under your condemnation, that today would be the day that we would turn to you and have that wrath and anger turned away and placed on your son, Jesus Christ. Father, if we've come to know you and are walking with you, Father, that you would uh, give us the patience, endurance, and perseverance to continue to live in such a way that would live in light of that, and in doing so, that we would uh, see, as the text says, that we'd bring forth glory, honor, and one day, standing before you, we'd be given immortality to live with you forever. Father, now go before us. Father, guide my words and give me the words that would only come from you. I pray that you'd be glory, glorified and honored this morning in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. In our American culture, there seems to be a love affair with the courtroom. There seems to be this um, desire to be a uh, fly on the wall when it comes to our court system. Maybe it's because uh, the whole court system, the whole idea of judge, jury, and uh, accused and accuser are all a part of our, uh, of course, our American constitution. The court system is a bedrock of who we are. We talk about having a speedy and fair trial, one amongst our peers. The founding fathers made this an important element. But sometime in the early 80s, that went from being a bedrock belief in our political system to becoming a form of entertainment. In 1981, a phenomenon broke out and it started by reminding us of the following statements. You'd be watching your television, and then you would see, uh, or you would hear a man come on the TV and announce these words to tell you what you were going to be a part of. He would say, what you're about to witness is real. The participants are not actors. They're actual people who have either filed suit or have been served a summons to appear in a California municipal court. Now, both parties in the suit have agreed to dismiss their court cases and have their disputes settled here in our forum, the People's Court. You bunch of couch potatoes. <laughs> the People's Court, Judge Wapner. We remember that. We remember watching people take their cases before a judge. Actual cases, not, not actors or actresses, but actual people. And we fell in love with it. In fact, since 1981, the People's Court has only taken off a year and a half of time, and it's been one of the longest shows um, that is ongoing. In fact, they believe that this is one of the first reality shows to ever take place on TV. Now, it spawned many other uh, shows. Judge Alex, Christina's Court, Judge Maria Lopez, Judge Mills Lanes, Judge Mathis, Judge Joe Brown, Judge Hatchett, Judge David Young, Moral Court, Texas Justice, and my mother-in-law, Judge Judy. <laughs> we are infatuated with the court system. And we love watching it. In fact, we, we have such a desire to be a part of that courtroom scene that there's now a cable network dedicated 24 hours to court. They call it Court TV. What a name. 
court TV. 24 hours of this going on. Now, it doesn't just involve uh, us watching real-life court drama, but it happens even in our sitcoms and in our dramas that we watch. Shows like Perry Mason, for those that are a little grayer than, than some in the place. Night Court. Do you remember that big, bald bailiff bull? Matlock. L.A. Law. Boston Legal. Judging Amy. Law and Order. Movie after movie has surrounded itself around this theme of law and order. It seems that we have a desire to be a part of it. But what is it? Maybe it's the tense atmosphere of that courtroom. Maybe it's the um, uh, deliberating between the prosecuting attorney and the defense attorney. Maybe it's that judge. It's that gavel. It's that uh, uh, bench that he sits behind. Maybe it's the feeling that innocence or guilt is hanging in the balance. What is it about the courtroom? What is it about guilt and innocence that we desire to be a part of so much? Well, our text this morning speaks about a courtroom scene. In fact, the first three chapters of the book of Romans, the apostle Paul is speaking as a prosecuting attorney telling the entire world they are guilty before God. Not just some of us, but all of us. In fact, at at the last part of Romans chapter 3, he gets done with his argument and he says, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. All of us, including himself, the one that was writing these things. And so as we look at this text, we need to understand that there's a courtroom scene taking place. The Bible speaks that God is the judge. The Bible speaks about us being the one who will stand who's accused of guilt. Since the the beginning of time in our great, 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 a million times over grandparents, Adam and Eve, we have found ourselves guilty before a perfect judge. And there's a day coming when judgment will come. And there's a day that is going to come when we will stand before the judge. And the question is, when the argument is made against you, what will your answer be? What will you say when the prosecuting attorney says you're guilty of this and this and this? What will your answer be? What kind of case will you bring forth before that judge who is completely holy? And then what will the verdict be? Can you say without a shadow of a doubt today that you know what you will share before that judge? The Bible is clear. There's a day of judgment coming. And so we need to look at a couple things. If we want to answer that question this morning, we have to understand what Paul says about this heavenly courtroom. You see, our text tells us a couple things. In fact, four things I want to look at. The first thing, when we look at God's court, we must understand that his judgment is promised. Write that in your outlines this morning. His judgment is promised. In verse 5, our text tells us, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself, and it says, for the day of God's wrath. Now it says, for the day of God's wrath, what's going to happen? When his righteous judgment will be revealed. Now understand, God has set a day when there will be judgment. This is one of our uh, cardinal beliefs of Christianity. In fact, uh, many of you know that uh, the elders are uh, revising the uh, doctrinal statement of our church and uh, adding some emphasis to certain things and and working on them. And in fact, uh, most all of the doctrinal statement was voted unanimously, I shouldn't say unanimously, about 98% uh, by our uh, membership. 
And one of the elements that we have in our doctrinal statement is that there will be a judgment of both the living and the dead. This is something we believe in. This is something that every uh, Christian must affirm. There's a day of judgment coming. Now understand this. Paul says that it is inescapable. Look at verse, uh, verse uh, 3. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment, when you act as the judge, and yet you do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? It's inescapable. It's not going to be just for some of us. It's not just going to be for the churchgoers or those who believe in God, but the judgment of God is going to be a time where every man, woman, and child will stand before God. It's coming. In fact, Hebrews chapter 9, you don't need to turn there, write this down. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. All of us die. I don't know anybody uh, in my life who hasn't reached a certain point in their life through the life cycle who said, you know what, I'm just, I don't think I'm going to die. I think, you know, dying is a little overrated. I've watched everybody else do it, and I'm going to stay alive. We don't have that choice. Why? Because the Bible says it's appointed. God has appointed a time where we will all die. I hope for all of us in this place, it's not today, but it's a little longer so we can enjoy life. But it's been appointed. But the same appointment that appoints us to death is the appointment of our judgment. It is appointed for man to die once. That's one appointment. The second appointment is that we will face judgment. Are you ready for it? It's promised. Now, God's word speaks about this, and it tells us a couple things. The Bible tells us that there is, uh, this judgment is promised, and it declares a date in time. A date in time. Now, the scripture says, just as we said, a man is appointed once to die... Then comes judgment. It reminds us that this judgment doesn't happen while we're alive. It comes after death. It comes at the end of this age. When God brings this world to a uh, culmination in this age as we know it, then the judgment will begin. Now, the Bible speaks of two judgments uh, throughout its writings. The first one are for those who have given their life to Jesus Christ. The scripture calls that the judgment seat of Christ. Now, Romans chapter 14, turn there for a moment. If you're in Romans 2, uh, turn to your right to Romans chapter 14. And Paul declares what this judgment seat of Christ is all about. This is what it says in Romans 14, starting in uh, verse uh, 10. In fact, I'll start in verse 9. It says, for this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he may be the Lord of both dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? Now listen to what he says. For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, and every tongue will confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 tells us, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one of us may receive what is due him for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. Now let's understand, what is this judgment about? The Bible makes it clear that if you give your life over to Jesus Christ, and you bow the knee and you repent of your sins and devote your life to following him, taking up the cross daily of what Christ has called you to do, then when you die, 
The Bible tells us that there is a judgment coming where we will stand before Almighty God. But heaven and hell won't hang in the balance for those. Because the moment that you trusted Christ as your Savior, the, the big theological term that we use is that you have been justified. Your sins have been taken care of. They were paid for on the cross of Calvary. So what is being uh, judged? What is being judged is what you did in light of that salvation. The Bible makes it clear that there will be uh, crowns given. There will be rewards for godly living. Now, our good acts, our good deeds, we'll talk about this in a moment, but I just want to make it clear, are not what save us. It is by the grace of God. We're saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works that anyone could boast of. But the Bible says, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ to do good works. Once we're saved, we're called to do good works. Once we're saved, we're called to a different kind of living. And in light of that living, God will judge all believers at the judgment seat of Christ. But there's a second judgment. If you can, put your finger in Romans chapter 2 and go all the way to the last book of the Bible in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 20. We see the second judgment. Revelation chapter 20, the last book of the Bible... Chapter 20, starting in verse 11. Not only is the judgment seat of Christ promised, but we see a second judgment. Revelation 20, verse 11, and I'll read through verse 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And yet another book was opened, which is the book of life. Now the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So all those books that are open are recording the lives of these dead, great and small. Then it says another book was opened, the book of life. Now it says death and Hades in verse 14 Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. It's hell. Now, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Heavy words on a Sunday where we dedicate children, but true words. For anyone who has never trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, your name is not found in the Lamb's book of life. And when you stand before Almighty God, great or small, whether you've done a lot in your life, whether you're known uh, throughout the world, if you even have a place in history for who you are, you will stand before God and God will look at your life and he will say, all right, you've done all these wonderful things or you did all these things in your life trying to uh, make yourself better. But there's one thing missing and the thing that is missing is you never gave your life to Jesus Christ. You never gave uh, yourself to my son. And the only way that you can be in the Lamb's book of life is giving your life to Jesus. And the Bible says if your name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life, no matter what you did, there's only one criteria. You give your life over to Jesus. If you didn't do that, you'll be cast into the lake of fire. We believe this. This is not something that we, we blush about. This isn't something that we say isn't true. Any person that believes in the Bible will believe in a literal place called hell. There's a date and time. But notice what else there is. There's a description of the events. 
this judgment that Paul is talking about, the scripture tells us a description of the events that are going, going on, that are going to be going on uh, during this judgment. In Revelation 20, it says it'll be a time where the earth and all in it will flee. This speaks of God's holiness. This isn't Judge Wapner, if you will, sitting behind the bench. This isn't Judge Judy behind the bench. This isn't a group of jurors in a juror box. This is God, holy God, a God in whom there is no sin, a God in whom there is no variation, and he will sit on that bench, and he will judge. And what will happen? The earth will flee because God is so holy. God is so just. And what's going to happen? The scripture tells us in different places. It says that at this judgment, this will be a time where every careless word will be judged. I don't know about you, but that bothers me. I talk a lot, and I say a lot of careless things. And Jesus tells us on the day of judgment, every careless word that you have spoken will be judged. The Bible also says in, uh, in the book of James that this will be a time where if we are teachers or proclaimers of the word of God at the judgment seat of Christ, that we will live under a stricter judgment. I don't like that either. The Bible also says that during this time, every motive that you have for whether serving Christ or serving self and rebelling against him will be unveiled before him. Everything that you've thought in your heart or thought up in your head that your wife or your husband or your kids or your boss or the people around you have never heard, those secret sins in your life, the Bible says on this day of judgment, everything will be laid bare. The things done in the darkness, the Bible says, will be brought to light. I don't know about you, but that is a scary thought. It's a description of events. It's not going to be a fun time. What judgment is? What judgment is, is fun? I believe that during that time, whether we are standing before the judgment seat of Christ or whether we are standing before the great white throne judgment, it will be a time where there will be lumps in our throat. Now you would say, well, Tim, I, uh, the judgment seat of Christ is for believers and we'll know that we're saved. And the Bible says there's no crying and no pain in heaven. I say, well, no, that, that comes a little later in the book of Revelation. When we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, I cannot fathom in my mind that when I stand before him and I watch all the things that I thought were good and, and man, you know, God's going to high-five me for these things, that he's going to say, your motives were wrong. It was more about you, Tim, than it was about me. You were pursuing more glory for yourself, Tim, and not glory for me. And the Bible says those things will be burned up. I do not believe I will sit there with a smile on my face saying, hey, no big deal, I'm in heaven. I believe my heart will be grieved beyond any grief that I've ever had before. But this is the wonderful thing. In both judgments, I believe our hearts will be grieved beyond measure. But the Bible says for one group of people that Jesus Christ will wipe away every tear. Not for both, but for one. You stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you will find compassion, mercy, and love. You stand before the great white throne judgment, and you will receive nothing but a direction, a directional map to your eternal home in hell. Heavy words, but they're true. The second thing we see this morning is that judgment in God's court is personal. It's personal. Notice what the text says in uh, verses 1 through 6. In fact, as you look at uh, Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, I want you to notice something. 
In fact, as I read it and you see the word you or yours, I want you to start counting. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at every point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you, uh, pass judgment, do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by patience and doing good seek uh, glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those, he says, who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. And then he continues to go on. I write down that there are 15 personal pronouns in those six verses. 15 personal pronouns. This is something that we must understand. God's judgment is personal. Understand this first of all. Write this down. When you stand before God, you will do it all by yourself. It will be done all by yourself. Write that in your outlines. This isn't something that uh, uh, you will do with your friends. This isn't something that will uh, happen and it will be a group of people. My junior year, I was uh, hanging out at a, a group uh, or a friend's house where a group of people had gotten together to play Capture the Flag. And there was some backwoods in, in a town just west of here. And we were playing Capture the Flag. And the reason why we were playing Capture the Flag is we were all athletes, and we had a zero-tolerance rule that if you were at a party where there was drinking or any kind of illegal behavior going on, you got uh, got, uh, in trouble for that, but you would lose the opportunity to play any sports then. So we would come up with these alternative activities. And in the same subdivision where there was a party, we were dumb enough to say, well, we'll hang out at so-and-so's house, we'll play capture the flag, and we'll do something so we don't uh, get involved there. Well, that party got uh, picked up, and the uh, cops came and started arresting kids, and then they start hearing noise from the nearby woods, kids running around and doing these things. Well, they brought the paddy wagon in, they went into the woods, and they got all of us as well. So we had to stand before uh, the judge. I will tell you as well, I had to sit for uh, what I thought was a couple hours at the Kane County Jail, and uh, I remember I made my one phone call, and my dad said, well, it was good knowing you, son. You shouldn't have wasted your one phone call on me. (laughs) Can I tell you, I was the last kid picked up, and I had two very wholesome meals at the Kane County Jail thanks to you, the taxpayers. My dad did every activity that day before he came and picked me up. I remember sitting in, the, in, in this room uh, of individuals. It wasn't a cell. Your preacher wasn't. I mean, technically, I was, I guess, in jail. But uh, um, I sat there, and they really started, you know what? Uh, was that your dad? Did you call the right guy? Because he said he was going to pick you up. I said, man, I, I don't want him to pick me up. I'd rather stay here. At least here I'm safe. And uh, I don't think my parents still have gotten done with my grounding of that. But can I tell you something? We needed to stand before a judge, and we got in trouble. We got in trouble because we were accused of being at a party. And you know what happened? We didn't go as a group. Now, some of us thought we would. We all had the same story. And we went to stand before the judge, and one by one, each of us walked in. 
nobody else around. You had the prosecutor on one side. I had my mom and dad on the other side. I shared my story, but it was all done by myself. I'll tell you what, there were a lot of kids that thought that we'd be together, and when they learned that they were going to be by themselves, they were frightened. Some of you think that this judgment's going to happen. It's going to be a whole lot of us, and that makes it easier. Anytime, have you ever gotten in trouble as a group? I remember the teacher used to say, uh, you know, uh, who did such and such? Uh, You better tell me, and nobody would say anything. And say, all right, if nobody's going to tell me who did it, all of you are in trouble. Well, that that was bad, but the Uh, corporate uh, judgment was never as bad as the individual judgment. I'll tell you, this isn't a corporate judgment that goes. This isn't having mom and dad sitting around with you. This isn't you getting together and and it happening uh, as a group, but you're by yourself, the scripture says. You'll be judged. You'll stand before God on your own. Notice what else it says. It'll It'll be done. God's judgment will be done according to what you've done. When you when you're judged, How are you going to be judged? According to what you have done. Look at what the scripture says. It says, God will give to each person according, in verse 6, to what he has done. Not what mom and dad have done. Not what faithful grandma did back in the day. Not about what you thought about doing. Not about what your intentions were. Not based on what others have done or based excuse me, on what others haven't done. And understand this, God's judgment is not judged on a curve. I used to live my whole academic life praying that there would be a curve. But there would always be that student, God help him, that would always get 100% or something close that threw the curve out the window. A lot of us are praying that there's a curve on the judgment day. But can I tell you something? We don't have a curve. Oh, we, if we judged ourselves according to what you and I have done, and we sit there and say, you know what, I never got in trouble like Tim did. On the judgment day, boy, Tim, look out. But, But according to what Tim has done, what I've done, I'm sitting pretty. That's what Romans 2 is all about. Romans 2 looks at Romans 1 and says, oh, I would never fall to that sin. I don't do this. I don't cheat on my wife. I don't cheat on my taxes. I don't uh, say bad things about God. I don't do any of that stuff. I'm pretty good. But Romans 2 says, you who pass judgment on Romans 1, do you not think you'll be judged? Judged according to what? According to what you have done. So what are we to understand about this? We need to understand two things. Number one, For those that don't understand the totality of what Scripture says, this does not mean that you are saved by the things that you do. Repeat that after me. You are not saved. Say that. You are not saved according to the works you do. According to the works you do. For it is by grace you are saved through faith. By God's unmerited favor you are saved. And it's not of works that any of us could even boast about. The book of Isaiah says that even our righteous deeds, even the greatest things that we think we do for God, are but filthy rags before him. So it's not about uh, the works that we've done. So why would Paul say that in the text? It is because he is saying whether you are a sinner or, if you will, a saint, that belief system, that way of life that you've lived will prove whether you're with Christ or you're not. If you call yourself a Christian, the proof is in the pudding. If you talk about being a Christian, then the old adage is true. The walk needs to match the talk. I could tell people about all my love that I have for my wife, Amanda. 
But if I never show it, my love will be put on trial and it will be found that I am not truly loving my wife. The verdict will be in. No matter how many times I say it to be true, it's based according to what we've done. Now notice, beyond that, not only is it personal and is it promised, but it's particular. God's judgment is particular. Now when I mean this word particular, I mean it's focused. It has a certain element to it that is a beelining, if you will, to a certain thing. And that is there are two things that are going to be, uh, two lives that are going to be looked at. As God looks at your life, he isn't going to put you in and say, okay, all the, the mechanics over here, all the bankers over here, and, uh, or all the men over here, and all the women over here, or, or all the religious people here, and all the non-religious people there. There's two camps that are, but they're none of those. There are two camps. He's going to look at your life, and you're going to be set up into one of those two camps. The first one that Paul talks about is the self-centered life, the self-centered life. Notice what is said in verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. Notice what verse uh, 8 says. But for those who are self-seeking, who by stubbornness and an unrepentant heart in verse 5, he says, those that are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there'll be wrath and anger. He starts there first. Now this self-centered life speaks about a couple things. Number one, it speaks about uh, let's see here, I lost my place in my notes here. Self-centered life speaks, first of all, about stubbornness. Notice what it says, because of your stubbornness. What are you stubborn to do? You're stubborn to follow God. God says, follow me. God says, worship me. God says, honor me with your life. God says, give your life over to me. And you, instead of pursuing God, you say, no, thank you, God. I've got a better offer somewhere else. It's going to be all about me. I'm going to take care of self. I'm going to look out for number one. And God, maybe I'll get back to you at a later date, but not right now. I'm going to take care of self. And it can be subtle. I've got a job. I've got kids. I've got a house to take care of. I've got to worry about this issue of the recession. I've got uh, goals and, and hobbies that I want to be a part of. And the Bible says all of those things, while they may be noble, on the day of judgment, the Bible says they will be things that we will be viewed as self-seeking. So it lacks Uh, or it brings forth stubbornness. Write this down. After stubbornness, it lacks submission. It says we reject the truth, but what is the truth about? Look back at verse 3. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Paul is is writing, and he's saying that if you think that uh, you can live a stubborn life and even cast judgment on others who sin bigger sins than you do, if you think you can do that and, and not be submitting to me and live a life of stubbornness, if you don't think I'm going to judge you, you've got another thing coming. You know, we live a particular way if we know there are consequences coming. I tell my children all the time, do this, do that. And sometimes they casually say, well, I'll get to it, Dad, or they don't even listen. But when I add the final element of that statement and say, you better do this or this, that, and the other thing is going to happen, it seems to change their motivation. When I articulate that there's going to be consequences to their stubbornness or their own self-seeking of pursuing what they want at the time instead of listening to dad, their whole idea changes. Some of us say there's no judgment coming. And you say, Tim, what you're talking about is a crock. It'll never happen. And I will tell you, the Bible says that when we stand before him, that stubbornness and that self-seeking, 
there'll be a problem. You see, when we begin to diminish or dismiss the judgment of God, we will live a certain way. We'll follow evil, it says. Why? Because there's no consequences. What consequences do I have of doing something that God's word says not to do unless God is true and there's judgment coming? The consequences of judgment should change the way we live. Now notice what he says takes place. He says it stores up wrath. He says you are storing wrath for yourself. What does that mean? In Romans chapter 1 verse 18, this issue of God's wrath comes up. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So God's wrath is being uh, shown, it's being displayed against all wickedness in the world. But now Paul says just a chapter, less than a chapter later, he says that we are storing up wrath for ourselves on the day of judgment. The best way that I can illustrate it is the picture that you have on the screen. Anybody tell me what this picture is of? Watch your mouth. Okay. Um, that was funny. Okay, so we've got Hoover Dam. What is on uh, the bottom side of the Hoover Dam? Anybody know what that uh, body of water is? Lake Mead. You guys are smart, man. Someone listened in geography class. Here's the idea that I want you to understand of this illustration. The Hoover Dam is storing up water in Lake Mead. And God's judgment on the judgment day is a lot like that. But Romans 1, verse 18, tells us that God's uh, judgment and wrath is being revealed. You see that water that's being poured out? That's coming from that body of water behind the dam. And it's letting out a little water at the time. That's a good picture of where we're at today. God's wrath isn't that dam breaking and all that water coming out. There would be a catastrophic flood if Lake Mead was to do that. But little by little, the engineers say, we're going to let out water that helps the farmers, that helps the water that we need to be able to drink to take care of much of the western uh, states uh, in the United States. That's the wrath of God being revealed, a little. But we need to recognize that when we look at that dam or we look at that little body of water at the top of the picture, we say, well, how bad is God's wrath? So let's say I don't live for Christ. That's boring anyway. I don't want to live that way. I don't want to be religious like those people. So, so I got a little wrath coming. I can handle that. The problem is, is what, what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, is that you don't have to worry about the little water at the top of the page, but he says on the day of judgment, all that wrath, every time you have sinned, think about it, you're pouring in more water behind that dam, and it's God's goodness, and it's his kindness and tolerance. Notice what it says in verse 4. Do you think... Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? God's faith, or God's kindness, patience, and tolerance is the dam. And it's holding back the wrath. And every day that we live self-seeking lives, every day that we live stubborn lives, that wrath behind that dam is being filled up. On the day of judgment, you won't see that river, but you will see that dam open up. God's wrath is coming. And the question is, do you have Jesus Christ standing as that dam, as the Hoover Dam holding back, taking on the full brunt of God's wrath, or will you take it on your own? God's wrath is particular, and it goes after the self-centered life. But notice, there's a second one, and it's the Savior-centered life. The Savior-centered life. The second group of people that stand on the day of judgment are just like the first. They're sinners, Every person, man, woman, and child that stands before God are all sinners. 
It isn't that some are good and some are bad. All are sinners. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the one who is in the Savior-centered life has acknowledged their sin and devoted themselves in light of verse 2. God's kindness and tolerance and patience. And that that has allowed us to come to repentance. Now notice what this life involves. It first of all involves a life uh, that lives um, a life of perseverance. It's a life of perseverance. Notice what it says in verse, uh, let's see here, verse uh, 8. Verse 8, verse uh, verse 7, sorry. To those who by patience in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give them eternal life. What is the Savior-centered life, Savior-centered life all about? It's about giving God the glory. It's about giving God the honor. It's about living one day with the patience and knowledge that as I live my life for Christ, there is a day of judgment that will come. And on that day of judgment, I will be vindicated of my sin, not because of what I've done, but because of Christ doing something for me, dying on the cross for my sins. And on that day, not only will I be given the pass of being innocent before God, but I will also be given the opportunity to live for all of eternity with him in heaven. That's that idea of immortality. So it involves a life that is involved in the perseverance of doing good, but it's also a life that is at peace with God. Notice later in the text what it says in verse 10. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. You want peace when you stand before God? You want, to be able to be able, uh, you want to be able to answer God when it's time on the judgment day and stand secure before him? And you bow the knee this morning to Jesus Christ. Give your life to Jesus Christ and you'll never have to worry about the wrath that is being stored up against you. The Bible says that we are uh, not objects of God's wrath, but objects of his love. What a difference. Because of Jesus, we can go from being an object of his wrath to be an object of his love. Well, how does he do it? The final thing I want you to look at is that in God's court, his judgment is done without partiality. It's done without partiality. Notice what the text says, verse 11. It's quite simple. You don't even have to look at the original languages. It says in verse 11, for a God does not show favoritism. God has a certain way he is going to judge, and that judgment will be done without partiality. There's not going to be any favoritism shown on that day. God isn't going to say on the day of judgment, he's not going to say, oh, Tim, you were a Cub fan. God bless you. I love you for that. And, and I don't want to send any Cub fans to hell. And even though you didn't do everything just right, Cub fans have got a special place in my heart. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, oh, Tim, uh, you know, you're a funny guy. I like you. And uh, even though you didn't get it all right, we need a guy like you up in heaven. Need to keep the mood light. It's going to be fun. I need someone to kind of uh, uh, get the people all excited. He's not going to say that either. God doesn't need us. And God isn't caring about, if you will, when it comes on the judgment day, what he likes and you like together. In fact, the Bible speaks that uh, what he likes is so far away from what we like because he's God and we're not. So what does it mean? The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter uh, 7 some things about the judgment day. But before we go to that, in verse uh, 8 and verse 10, it says two times for both the Jew 
and the Gentile. Understand this about God's partiality, that there's no partiality in God. It doesn't matter what associations you have, they won't help. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, your associations won't help you. It doesn't matter who you are, what nationality you are. A Jewish person and a Gentile person, all who are not Jewish, will stand before God, the Bible says in Romans chapter 3, both condemned. You can't say, well, my mom and dad are this, or, or I'm a part of America, or I'm a part of the Jewish nation, or, or uh, my people did this, or my people did that. Your associations won't help. Jesus spoke about the judgment day in Matthew chapter 7. And he said, not only will your associations not help, but your affirmations won't help either. The Bible says that many on that day, when he's speaking of the judgment, will say to me, Lord, Lord. There will be a lot of people on the judgment day who will say, Jesus, my friend, my pal, my Lord. And Jesus says, I will tell them, I never knew you. There are some here today that believe that they are in that Savior-centered life. Maybe you walked the sawdust trail, you prayed a prayer, you you went to church all your life, and man, you knew Jesus. But Jesus said there will be some on that day. In fact, he says many on that day will say, Lord, Lord. They will affirm him as Lord with their mouth. But notice what Paul says. The proof is in the pudding. A lot of us say that we love Jesus, but we don't live like it. A lot of us say we have a relationship with Jesus, but we're having all kinds of mistresses, if you will, on the side. Where Jesus isn't number one, but all other things are. But notice the next thing that he says. Many on that day will say, Lord, Lord, did I not cast out demons? Did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not do all these things for your name? And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Your associations won't help. Your affirmations won't help. And your actions won't help on the day of judgment. Now you say, wait a minute, Tim. You just said that a life in Christ is how we'll be judged. Yes, But there's one thing that is going to be judged on that day to put you in the Savior category or the selfish selfish category, and that is Jesus Christ. Many on that day will say, Lord, Lord, did I not do all these things? What, What they're articulating, what Jesus is saying is, your basis of salvation can't be who you say you love, Jesus, nor can they just be what you think you've done. If you think that you knowing Jesus, if you will, and you doing some things for Jesus is going to save you, you're dead wrong. But it involves a life that is dedicated to Christ, bowing the knee and giving yourself to Jesus Christ and him alone. So how do I close this thing out? Let me tell you this. You may say, Tim, what a heavy message. Wow, Tim, didn't you look at the calendar and say there's baby dedications, a lot of visitors? This isn't a message we should be preaching. Well, I I beg to differ. Can I tell you this is the best message we could preach on any of these Sundays? Why? Because it's the most important thing. Whatever this text teaches, my friends, it teaches us many things, but one thing is abundantly clear and immeasurably important for us in our mission in this modern and secular world, and that is when your life is over, and I can assure you, your life will come to an end at some point, you are either going to leave this planet and you're going to stand before God, give him, being given either eternal life or wrath and indignation. Either you'll receive glory, honor, and peace on that day, or you'll receive tribulation and distress. Heaven or hell awaits you when you die, and both will last forever. So whatever else you see in this text, whatever else you were listening to while I was talking, understand this. What could be more important, what could be more relevant, what can be more urgent or immense 
than understanding whether or not when we stand before God, we can experience happiness and joy or misery for all of eternity. It's not just for some, it's for all. For the parents who are standing up here before uh, with their babies uh, dedicating them, this is important for you. Someday, and I, and I say this not with joy in my heart, but someday those children are going to die. I hope it's when they are old and gray, but we don't know. We don't know whether it will be at eight years or 12 or 14 or 18 or 38 or 68 or 108. Many of you know I had a brother that was killed at 16 years of age, full of life and full of energy, but God appointed my brother to die, and he did. We can't escape it. There's nothing we can do about it except this. For the parents, not just those that were up here, but for all of us in this place, it is time for us to recognize that on that day of judgment, our children will either enter into eternal life with God or go away under his eternal anger and misery forever. So what are we called to do? Preach the gospel to your children. Preach it. They don't have to go away with God's anger and judgment upon them, but they can know for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There's grace and there's hope. Teach your children it. As Pastor Keith said, while they're sitting down and while they're lying down and while they're standing up, don't teach them baseball and basketball and how to make a casserole. Those things are secondary. Teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where it begins. It's not just for them. It's for our teenagers in this place. Be wise. Teenagers, set your minds to think about what really matters. College isn't what matters. Boyfriends and girlfriends don't matter. Your grades, and I can get in trouble for this, your grades don't even matter. God matters. The Savior matters. And you put all your investment in what he or she thinks about you or what you look like in your clothes or what you look like with your new hairdo. Those things are temporary. Beauty is fleeting. But there is a day coming where you, teenager, will stand before Almighty God. And if you say, you know what? It is time for me to sow my wild oats. It is time for me to experience life. I'll get to you, God, when I grow a little older. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us this. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the, and the years draw nigh when you say, I have no pleasure in them. Today is the day you begin living for Christ. Today is the day you start living with a mindset that there is a day coming I will stand and have to give account for what I've done. How about all the married couples and single people in the prime of your life who are uh, falling prey to all the consuming demands of your career and you work day in and day out gasping for some air at the end of the week to say, now it's time for me. Now it's time for my toys. Now it's time for my entertainment. Now it's time for me just to enjoy things. It's because of this American culture we have become connoisseurs of restaurants, videos, movies, sports, stocks, computers, and a hundred other momentary and dumb things in this world. And yet we say, that's what I'm living for. Thank goodness it's Friday. I'm living for the weekend. And while all that is going on, while you live in that moment, Heaven and earth hang in the balance. 
During that time where you're enjoying life, where you're taking in the food and the enjoyment of the world, your sense of heaven and hell have died. My friends, wake up before it's too late and begin to tremble at the thought that the things that you are doing today are distracting you from the very important things that will stake your eternity forever. How about you older saints? Or maybe some that aren't even saved. Don't hide from this teaching today from this fast-approaching, all-important truth that in a few short years, months, and maybe even some days, that your soul will stand before Almighty God and that you will look before Him. Can you say that you know that God will give you the grace on that day? That you've lived in a way. You say, well, but I've retired. And, and, and that just doesn't mean physically, but I've retired spiritually. Now it's time for someone else to do it. Look at the life of Caleb who lived long and strong and said, I will go until you tell me to stop, Lord. I will go until you tell me that it's time to be done. Don't give up on God. Be ready because you're going to enter into either life and immortality or you're going to fall into the hands of the omnipotent God to whom the Bible says for sinners will be filled with wrath. I have such a burden for us as a church to swim against this tide of every current in our culture More and more we find ourselves a nation not given over to trembling at the thought that we will stand and give an account, but it's about our fun. Have you ever thought about the amount of times you've said with great frequency, things were fun, that was fun, this was fun, but can you measure and ask the question of all the activities that you're a part of, of all the things that you do in your life, how many of them can you say are meaningful, significant, enriching, edifying, transforming, valuable, eye-opening, and above all, God-exalting? When was the last time you were a part of experience that you said, this is what it will be like when we get to heaven? I'll tell you, there are going to be movies in heaven. There ain't going to be fast food in heaven. There isn't going to be um, your iPod in heaven or video games in heaven. It is going to be a time of God-exalting worship and praise. And if you say, you know what, that's boring. If you come here on Sunday mornings and say, hey, I could think of a million other things better to do, then that should question, it would be a question in your heart saying, if that's what we're going to do in eternity, and I find that to be boring or uh, uh, not fun, then that should say something to you. That should say, I'm not even ready for eternity. Examine yourself with this text this morning. Whatever it teaches, it teaches this, my friends. It teaches that after death, there's either eternal life, glory and honor and peace, or there's eternal wrath and God's indignation, tribulation and distress. In the twinkling of an eye, before the service will even end, we could stand before Almighty God. And irreversibly, we will either die to one outcome or the other. Today, I warn you in that way. Live in light of eternity. Don't live in light uh, or in a shadow, but in the light. When you've come to know your God, love his son, that you may be able to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because then when we live in light of that eternity, we will experience not fun, but a deeper, higher, wider, longer, more unshakable understanding and satisfying life than any of the world pleasures can give. It has been said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Are you living for Christ this morning? Are you living for Christ? If you're not, there's a day coming. It's been promised. If you want to talk with anyone about this, 
Come find me. Come find John Pilkington, who will be up here in a moment. Keith Duff, go to the Welcome Center. We don't want you to leave this place until we can share the good news of Jesus Christ, that we don't have to stand before the judgment of God and be found guilty. Christ came in this world not to condemn sinners, but to bring forth eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. Lord, I thank you for this text. Lord, it may be an offense to some, but Lord, it doesn't need to be. It doesn't need to be an offense. It can be the greatest news that has been ever shared, that though we are sinners, dead in our trespasses and sin, that you didn't leave us there. Though we are objects of your wrath, Ephesians chapter 2 says, you didn't leave us there. But according to your great love and mercy for us, you sent Jesus to die. Oh, Lord, I'm so thankful, not because of the things I've done, but because what you've done for me, that I can stand assured, confident before my king, knowing that uh, my sins have been covered. But, Lord, I also recognize that that will not be what will be on trial in my life, but it will be how I live. Father, change my motives, change my heart, that I will live for you day in and day out. But, Father, for those that have never turned to you, that today would be the day they do it. That as your spirit moves in this place, that you would work in the hearts of people a desire to repent and to turn from sin and to turn to you. It is only then, Father, it is only then, your word says it is only then that we can experience eternal life and all that that affords. Let no one leave this place without knowing for sure that they have eternal life. And let no one leave this place until they've committed in their hearts that they will live in light of that. To you be the glory, honor, and praise in what we do. In Jesus' name, amen.